Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. I'm Kurt Heeland, managing editor of the NBA page at NBC, and with you as always. And today, it's NBA Finals in October. Just, okay, not exactly when we usually schedule it, but we've got it going on today. We're going to be talking NBA Finals Miami Heat versus Los Angeles Lakers, not a matchup we expected. We have got Mark Medina from the USA Today, who has been inside the bubble, is now out hanging out with family, but still writing about everything. Uh, how's it going, Mark? Kurt, uh, I'm doing well. It's always good to hear your voice. And yeah, it's nice to see family. I love the bubble experience, but you know, it's it's almost one of those things where if you're asking a player to play 48 minutes after a while, you know, the, the body starts catching up to you. So it was nice to to get a little breather, but I'm I'm glad I was part of the experience because I'll, I'll never forget it. Are you now like a ringer at pickleball? Is that the deal? <laughs> you know, the thing about pickleball is the, the courts were always reserved for the referees. I could never, you know, get on the waiting <laughs> list. Uh, the, you know, I was very far below in the pecking order. And, you know, maybe in my defense, I wasn't aggressive enough because once I realized the, the waiting list was heavy, I knew, hey, I got a lot of things on my plate, so I won't even bother to try. So uh, I can't, I couldn't even tell you how bad I would be at pickleball if I had the chance, but I'm sure it, it wouldn't have been good. And uh, secretly a pickleball master also with us, Dan Feldman from NBC Sports. How's it going, Dan? I'm good. You know what? When I go visit my uh, my family in Florida in the winter to, to escape this Michigan cold, uh, you know, the senior citizens around there uh, all love to play pickleball. They're playing all winter and uh, I can hold my own with them, which I take a little pride in. <laughs> wow. Pickleball well, here. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that that was, I, I guess that makes some sense as a, uh, an, an activity. We although are not going to be talking about the world pickleball championships, which is probably dominated by a country like Latvia or something. And we just don't know it. Um, we will move on instead and talk about the NBA finals. Miami Heat versus the Los Angeles Lakers, not, again, not just, I don't think it's what all of us expected going in, but it's going to be an interesting finals. And it's, the, Mark, you were in the bubble. It uh, you, you talked about it kind of being a grind on teams. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that you get here with the Los Angeles Lakers who have this powerhouse, you know, in LeBron James who kind of sets a tone and culture for a team going against Miami Heat who have another strong locker room leader in Jimmy Butler, but also a culture of, of, basketball focus and that those are the two teams who come out of this not a surprise at all I mean I think when we were looking into the bubble uh, ahead of time uh, there was a feeling that all bets are off this is so so unconventional but when you're looking at the result of Lakers heat it's not like it was an eighth seed that somehow caught lightning in a bottle and decided and was able to get to the finals there, there isn't a surprise here but I think even when you take into account the Lakers' talent and the Heat's talent, the, the one of the underrated things that really got them to this point is how they handled this whole challenge of being in a bubble. And I think that this reflects two things. One, both teams did a magnificent job with staying in shape as best they can under the guise of you can only do quarantined workouts during the season hiatus. Um and then secondly, they had a lot of mental strength and fortitude to get through a number of challenges here. You know, here, you know, the teams haven't been able to see their family for at least the first month and a half before family members were allowed to, to visit the campus. 
That's number one. Number two, the monotony of it. Look, the setup's nice. The hotels are nice. Everything is all gravy there, but there is a monotony to it. Um, and I think there's a grind where every other day there's a game. Every other day there's a practice. There, there's not that much of that kind of recovery time and also release just to do other things. And then I think, you know, also the state of the world, the, the pandemic, uh, you know, the, the racial injustices that the players are speaking out on, all those things combined, I think, played a, a huge role into, you know, teams struggling through this whole process. But I think teams like the Lakers and the Heat, even though those things were on their mind and they're, they're, they've had their good and bad days, they had things to fall back on. Uh, to be able to get themselves through these different challenges. Absolutely. They are deep teams. Dan, Dan, did you want to add something to that? Well, here's what I've been wondering for a while. What do we think the odds are that the Heat would have made the finals if the season were just completed as normal? Like, I give them all the credit for handling this environment, doing those things they, they are so good at, and they deserve credit for it. But it is a different thing than a normal year right when we talk about hey this is a deserving conference champion we don't necessarily mean well who's really good at handling being in a bubble and all the complications that come with it that's not usually what we're trying to reward now they met the challenge in front of them and that's part of who they are as a team they're a team that meets the challenge in front of them but how confident are we that they would have made the finals uh, if this were just played out as normal I wouldn't have been surprised if they made the finals, for sure. I mean, they're a good team. It's not like they came out of nowhere. There is a lot of equity and culture there. They have a lot of talent, which is the predominant factor in the NBA. But I think you also have to calculate that into maybe the other teams that didn't thrive in the bubble. Would yeah. they have felt more comfortable having home court advantage? Would they have felt more comfortable – just dealing with normal life of being closer to family. And so I think that's where the edge ultimately is. And look, you can't discount the fact that the Heat have star players. They have a lot of depth. They're very well coached. Um, they have a very good culture. So those things certainly came into play. But I think in this unconventional season, you can't help but wonder, you know, to what extent the teams that aren't here struggle with some of those things that I mentioned while you know, also crediting that the Heat found ways to navigate those things uh, pretty well. That was my question. Is like, I think in the East specifically, like the Bucks just did not seem to handle the the bubble well at all. Would that have been a different experience for them if if this had been a more traditional home court type of situation? Um, it, we'll never know. But the credit to the Miami Heat for doing this, they get to the uh, finals against a, a Lakers team that, look, it was it was good. If it was the Lakers or the Clippers out of the West, I don't think we were surprised. Nobody has really matched up well with the Lakers, though, through this. I mean, the, the Lakers have had some real advantage. I don't want to say advantages because they've earned their spot, but uh, is it just me or does Miami match up kind of well? And I think for me that starts with the fact the one guy on the planet who could probably give Anthony Davis a run for his money a little bit is Bam Adebayo. Yeah, I think that the Heat match up really well with the Lakers. And I think you hit it on the head with Bam Adebayo. When you look at the rest of the field here, there wasn't really anyone that could match up with Anthony Davis. Now, look, Nikola Jokic is the best passing big man with the Denver Nuggets. So, I mean, they had size for size. 
but I didn't really see Jokic shut down Anthony Davis, right? And then the other the other two teams that the, the Lakers faced, I mean, the Rockets, they don't even have a center. <laughs> and that was by design. And then Portland, I mean, Anthony just bulldozed uh, that front court. Um, so, yeah, I think that this is going to be a real challenge. And I think when you, you know, look at it from an even wider lens, uh, the Heat have a lot of depth that hit a lot of different needs. You know, they have the the clutch players, the scorers, a la Jimmy Butler, and we've seen with Tyler Hero. We have the defenders like Bam Adebayo. You have your steady vets, X-factor types like Goran Dragic and Andre Iguodala. And when you compare and contrast that with the Lakers, uh, it's a given that LeBron and Anthony Davis have to be at their best and healthy. But as far as those extra X factors, it's certainly helped that the Lakers have had that, but you just don't know what, what you're getting. Sometimes it's been Rajon Rondo being playoff Rondo when Dwight Howard got some minutes at the center spot against Denver. Sometimes it was him. Sometimes you saw flashes of Kyle Kuzma, Danny Green, Contavious Caldwell Pope. But for better and for worse, it was always by a committee for the Lakers. There wasn't a dependable guy outside of their star players that they knew on any given night they were going to get this from them. So that that might be an ultimately deciding factor in the grand scheme of things with this whole series. The thing that's impressed me the most about the Lakers during this uh, playoff run is how versatile they've they've looked. Uh, I, you know, I thought they could play one way. That's really what they showed during the regular season. They played big. They liked to get up tempo. That was it. Uh, you know, we look back on the Rockets and kind of say, yeah, you know, they couldn't match up with the Lakers. But going in, I thought there was – some real concern that the Rockets would twist the style in a way that gave the Lakers some trouble. And it really didn't. Uh, and the Heat are very different, right? We're looking at them as a team that can match up with the way the Lakers usually like to play, uh, but also the versatility maybe to impose their own style a little bit. And uh, I've got a lot more confidence now that the Lakers can handle that. I I would agree with you. I think, though, that this the other part of this is, look, we saw it at the end of the game. LeBron James is still able to absolutely take over and dominate games and be the best player on the planet for a stretch. And he, you know, he did it in close at fourth quarter closeout game where he's what seven of 10 from the floor and 16 points and, and, and just ends that series against Denver. Jimmy Butler though, is another guy who can kind of get under his skin can, as much as any one human being is going to match up on LeBron. Jimmy Butler can kind of do it. The problem is, the Lakers, I think, are also better than any team left in the in the well, left left in the playing. But I mean, what are the teams that went deep in the finals playoffs? Of, of they just hunt mismatches. They LeBron just hunts them, and I I pity poor Tyler Hero right about now because I think Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson are just going to get hunted by the Lakers. Yeah, and I think this is certainly not unique to what LeBron James does. This is his, his mo with his career, but. I think particularly this season, he's done a masterful job of finding a way to set the tone offensively, even if he's not the main focal point, um, if that makes sense, because he's he's leading the league in assists, he's running the offense, but he's always manipulating in a way where it allows him to either be aggressive and drive to the basket, get some easy shots, or look for AD or the open man. And I think that that starts with LeBron James, with his playmaking, but also what Frank Vogel has done is he's he, he's quickly realized that 
the Lakers, their three-point shooting, it's just, it's not good. And sometimes they have some good nights, but it's usually few and far between. So his formula has been, let's generate our offense through making defensive stops. And not only does that do the obvious with, you know, getting, you know, easy baskets and transition, but their three-point numbers, I don't have them in front of me, but I feel like just watching the games itself, when they do have three-point, uh, strong three-point shooting nights, it's when they're in transition because they, they yeah. have that energy from making a defensive play. You know, people the defenses are in scramble mode uh, as opposed to when they're running just a half-court offense. The, the half-court offense usually just works when it's LeBron doing his thing, whether as a scorer or a playmaker. The Laker half-court offense hasn't been that great through all of this, Dan, and I guess that becomes one of the questions. Can the Heat force them into the half-court and keep them out of, you know, it's easy to say keep them out, but the Lakers run off their defense, and their defense has been so good. Yeah, I'm very interested to see how the Heat's zone works in this series. Um, What's interesting about how Miami does it, uh, as has been discussed so much through the Celtics series, is uh, the Heat put some of their bigger wings on the top to create a little more havoc rather than just having those smaller guards up there. Well, that's great against, you know, Kemba Walker, who's a very good player, but a smaller guard. I I think he felt very pressured uh, by that. That doesn't work against LeBron James at point guard, right? He's big, he's strong, like that's not going to phase him. So if you do that, I don't know how that works. Like, I don't think that's going to be as effective. Uh, And so I I do think there is some room for the Lakers half-court offense to look a little better. Uh, But, you know, the the Heat have different ways they can play, right? Just because they played a zone against Boston a lot, that worked against the Celtics. Uh, You know, hunting mismatches, sure, that's nice. Uh, The Heat do a good job of avoiding that because they're so versatile, right? I think they have more ability to hide players like Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson. Uh, Maybe the the Lakers can still attack that some, for sure. Uh, But I, I do think because the Heat have so many versatile defenders around those guys, uh, it is easier to hide them. Um, Miami also showed some moments during, uh, look, during the series against Boston throughout these playoffs. They they seem to have some moments of lapses. They seem to have some moments where they kind of mentally check out. If that's, I don't, I just don't think they could afford to have that against the Lakers. This is a different level. Boston certainly aided them by just having, you know, Jason Tatum take a half off here and some other stuff going on. Where they weren't as look, I think that's one of the things that they have to talk about internally. If as Boston looks to make the next step, that brings us back to Miami has had those moments too, and I'm not sure that you're going to be able to exploit that against the or do that against the Lakers and survive. They're going to have to have a they they can't have the the kind of down second halves that the Heat have had a few of. They've had some bad third quarters. I want to push back on that a little bit. I don't think it's like down effort or intensity or focus. I think that's just a sign of the Heat aren't that good for a finals team. Like to me, the Heat are very like low end finals team and all the credit for them for making it happen. Like what we're going back to of would this have happened in a normal year. Uh, But I just think overall, like their quality of play is just not quite that good for a finals team, which is not really a slight. Like they made the finals. They're obviously a finals team and they're very, very good. But I'm just like for a finals team, I think that's what it is more than, you know, focus or energy or something like that. Yeah. And to what Dan said, what really impresses me is, and I agree with what he, what you said about, you know, why those lapses happen yet, even when it happens, they still find a way to still stay in the game because, you know, they have 
you know, the, I think the strong mental fortitude to not, you know, get rattled when shots aren't falling or or teams going on a run. And they just go back to their basics of, you know, find different ways to scheme defensively or, uh, you know, have different mismatches. And then they have a lot of, I think, clutch players that can hit key shots. Now, I think if the, if the Heat are to have those lapses, the Lakers, for the most part, have shown this year that when they smell blood, they, they take care of that pretty quickly. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why the Lakers have closed the series out so far in the playoffs in five games. They never messed around in those elimination games. But I, I think to this point, I just don't see the Heat having that against the Lakers because they know the attention to detail is so important. Um, so I think it, it's going to be the ultimate chess match of, you know, even if the Lakers on paper have, you know, the better star players with LeBron James and Anthony Davis, like philosophically, both teams have a lot of depth. It's quality coaching. And so it's really going to go down to, you know, what scheme works, what what defensive matchup works, what possession works toward the end of the game. So um, it'll be interesting to see all those different things play out. I, I will say that to the degree the Heat have some lapses, I think the most common element has been settling for not great jump shots, uh, not really working the offense around. And, you know, that's not good, right? You can't do that against a better team and, and have a good chance of winning. But at least that doesn't directly tie into what the Lakers want to do, right? The Heat don't get sloppy and throw the ball around all over and have a bunch of turnovers that the Lakers can turn into fast yeah. break points. They don't have defensive, you know, breakdowns you know, where the other team can score easy. You miss jump shots like, okay, you're not helping your own offense, but at least your defense is probably still in position uh, to get set. And I think obviously Spolstra is going to be all over them about getting back and being in transition and being ready and just not, you can't let LeBron get ahead of steam going full court. And I think Denver was, I mean, game one against the Lakers, the Nuggets, the Lakers were running on them after makes. Denver was just not getting back. And I don't think you're going to run into that with Miami. They're obviously well coached in a, well, a very disciplined team for them to win for, for the heat to win. What has to go right to me? It's it's the first thing that's got to happen is Goran Dragic and in particular, but the, the, the heat guards have to be able to just destroy and get into the paint against Rondo against whoever's guarding them. Um, the, the Lakers is, will probably miss Avery Bradley in this series. Um, if, if Goran Dragic can get into the paint and then kick back at, you know, kick out and the Lakers have been great on their rotations, their scrambles have been fantastic. But if Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero can get some space and you can work inside out like that with, uh, and with Bam Adebayo to get threes, if they're knocking down the threes like that, that could cause some trouble for the Lakers. Oh, without a doubt. And I think the other, the other, underrated aspect is that Miami can do is they're not going to, you know, stop LeBron James, but I think they're as best equipped as they can of throwing different bodies that can hold their own. Uh, Jimmy Butler's really good. You know, Andre Iguodala has had a lot of history yeah. with LeBron. Um, and I would say the only, the only concern I've seen from LeBron this postseason has nothing to do with his game, but there has been, some concern of his fatigue level and, and Frank Vogel wanting to monitor his minutes. And look, LeBron's going to play heavy minutes as the finals, but if there is a way through attrition to make him less effective as the series goes on, 
that can obviously play in the Heat's favor. And then I think, you know, this is partly related to it, but as dominant as Anthony Davis has been, sometimes he's gone in his own way where he, he's had some Jeff one high performances. If he feels inclined to open the game and becoming a jump shooter as opposed to attacking the basket. So if Miami forces Anthony Davis into becoming that, I think that could play a huge role into, you know, not just stealing a game or two, but even potentially winning the series. Yeah. And some of that depends on LeBron's approach too, right? Like throughout the season, we've seen him trying to get Anthony Davis going, trying to, you know, prioritize Anthony Davis. Uh, and if Anthony Davis gets out of his comfort zone because of the Heat's defense isn't playing aggressive and LeBron's like still trying to force feed him, like that can escalate a little. I, I'm mostly with Kurt that I, you know, I agree with everything you, you said too, but uh, just, I think the obvious thing is, is shooting. The Heat can get hot from beyond the arc. They can get those looks. And uh, if they're really hot, that can cause problems, especially if the Lakers who are not a reliably good three point shooting team uh, are cold from beyond the arc. Like, you know, I do think this series is definitely in the Lakers' favor. A lot of things need to break right for the Heat. Uh, but to me, that's the the starting point. It's also controlling the paint, right? Like, the Lakers, more than any team in the league, really go. LeBron drives into the paint. He's not a jump shooter by nature. Obviously, Anthony Davis can hit threes, but he's going to work inside. They tend to play big. I'm curious how long they can play big in this series. Um, and, you know, if if... Meyer Leonard is back off the bench for some spots instead of just being like the uh, ultimate male cheerleader off the bench. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the he'd have to find a way to control the paint and not let the Lakers just own the paint. And for that matter, own the glass and own the own, and offensive glass. They've, they've got to find a way to kind of get those rebounds and stop those possessions. Yeah, and I think with the Lakers, um, they've tried to thread the needle with this. I mean, they're 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 not you know following Mike D'Antoni's philosophy or anything, but with their size, they have tried to really prioritize attacking the basket as opposed to post ups because of just you know even if Anthony Davis is really good, um, it, it's just not as as an efficient play, and it also lessens the odds of gain trips to the foul line. So if there is a pick, the poison with Miami, it is, you know, goad them into posting up as opposed to attacking the basket. And, you know, the Lakers are really good at that anyway, but I think if you had to choose one or the other, you would certainly choose the post-ups. I'm glad you mentioned fouls. I think that's going to be one of the real interesting parts of this series. Both of these teams are good at drawing fouls and both can be prone to fouling, uh, which could just be infuriating to watch uh, how this goes, depending on the calls. Like, I don't want this to be a series with a bunch of griping about the refereeing, uh, but I have a hunch that's how it could go. Yeah, I mean, the Lakers, uh, you know, they didn't do anything nefarious here. It's a it's a normal protocol, but, you know, they made it clear that, you know, during the, the Nuggets series, they felt that there weren't enough whistles for LeBron when he was attacking the basket, and they certainly were in touch with the league when, you know, they sent them footage to look at. And that, again, that's not a unique thing. Like, I've been told that, that teams do that on a normal basis for obvious reasons, but I know that going into the uh, going into this series, that that's something I might carry over because it was such a prevalent development on Denver's end. Well, I was going to say I I've heard for for a long time teams do that. Although yeah. they send some film in, or they said, and they do this during the season too. Like, hey, 
we're not getting this call or this is kind of being called this way. Why? And kind of pointing things out. I, what's interesting is look, Daryl Morey, like occasionally is like, Hey, well, we reached out to the league about James Harden, not getting foul calls or whatever it is. It's it's deciding to leak that to appease your fan base a little bit to hey we see it we're we're talking to them kind of way as opposed to just kind of doing it behind the scenes is is interesting to me like that's the it's not that every team doesn't do it Denver does it every, literally every team does it on some level some more than others probably you know certainly but leaking it is something else it's leaking it is is about the PR spin. Oh, without a doubt. And I certainly, um, I certainly enjoyed when Nuggets coach Mike Malone would throw quotes after the game, questioning the officiating. But then he would go at length into saying, "This is not why we lost. It's because we lost the rebounding battle." Um, so he was having it both ways. But clearly, that was different than Daryl Morey, where you know the game one uh, between the Rockets and the Warriors last year in the semifinals, for example. I mean, that was clearly. The refs screwed us, and if they didn't screw us, we would have won the game. <laughs> so yeah. I, I think there's a different different level of message in there. I, I think in Houston, it's not if the refs didn't screw us, we would have won the game. I think it's if the refs didn't screw us, well, then you know it was just bad luck that our shooters, our shots didn't fall that, that yeah. cost us the game. There's always something. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Dan, we've talked about a, a bunch of different areas. Is there an area we haven't covered that you think is going to be something you really want to watch in these finals, something that's critical for either side. Um, I mean, among the things we haven't talked about, I'm curious about uh, the Lakers going for offensive rebounds. Uh, You know, they're pretty good at that. The Heat are a good defensive rebounding team. I think that'll be a fun battle. I think that that's going to be actually a lot of, uh, you can't give the, the Heat just can't give the Lakers second and third opportunities. And like you said, the Lakers are big. They get into the paint. They've got bodies there. They have not, um, I don't want to say eschewed, but the you know the don't worry about the offensive rebound. Get back on defense. That is the governing philosophy or the majority philosophy around the NBA is not necessarily how the Lakers have operated this year, Mark. No, and I think what's intriguing about this postseason run is their their bench identities change series to series for the better where Frank Vogel would make an adjustment based off of, you know, what that team did. And so there was always this new bench guy that emerged as a contributing, you know, player where I think in the Denver series, it was Dwight Howard and the Rocket series, it was Rajon Rondo. I'm fascinated as the series progresses, how much will Frank continue to dig into that? And this, this could be to their, credit or it could be to their detriment because of what I was saying earlier that there's not a definitive third or fourth option here but I think because of how well coached the Heat are and how much depth there is I think there's going to be a lot of adjustments game to game uh, from Frank's end to try to you know hide some of their bench weaknesses but also try to find some different uh, you know matchup advantages. All right well this is what's on everybody's mind at this point. Is there going to be a role for Deion Waiters in this series? I mean, you would think, right? Facing his former team. has to be. <laughs> That's the big storyline, right? Waiters versus his former team. That is that is the big storyline. I mean, I, I, Dan, you actually were writing about this a little bit. There's just not a lot. We were kind of – I was just kind of surprised. There's not a lot of 
player X goes up against his former team in the finals history here. All right, so I guess I can spoil this now because this will be published by the time the podcast comes out. You can go read uh, on the site, NBCSports.com, for more details. There are three all-star players who have faced their former team in the finals. Oh, is it yeah, three? Le- you found three. Okay. LeBron this year. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain with the Philadelphia 76ers did it against the San Francisco Warriors in 1967. And Ed <laughs> McCauley with the St. Louis Hawks in 1957 against the Boston Celtics. Wow, that's some knowledge right there. <laughs> that's um, I, I'm not sure how much I can draw from that to make conclusions about how this well, is going to go. <laughs> no, I don't think you can draw much for this series. It's interesting, though, because those other teams, like the Warriors traded, Wilt Chamberlain got bad, got Rick Barry, and that's how they built back up. Uh, the, the Celtics traded Ed McCauley because they really liked this player in the draft named Bill Russell. Uh, so those teams were like, let's get a young player, like let's transform. That's not how the Heat went, right? This says something about how unique uh, the Heat's rise was. And then there are a few other players who were not all-stars uh, th- that season, but were near their all-star time, like Adrian Dantley with the Pistons in 1988. Uh, was he a star in 1988 when he was playing the Lakers, his former team? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Paul Westfall uh, with the Suns had just been traded from the Celtics. He didn't make the all-star team that year. I think he probably was a star that year, so that's a little bit of discretion. There are only a few of those players, too. Uh, this is rare for obvious reasons, right? Like, if you're a player who's good enough to get a team to the finals and you leave a team, it's hard for that team to, to make the finals again. And if you're on a team that can actually do that, why are you leaving? Like this is just the the right set of circumstances. I just like the fact that uh, Dan is pimping Adrian Dantley, the greatest player in Notre Dame basketball history. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It would, it would be fitting. Leave it to a cuse guy to maybe uh, determine the outcome of this final series. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's all going to come down to waiters. I, I, I don't know that, by the way, that it's obviously an interesting storyline. I don't know that it affects LeBron all that much, or does it? I mean, there. The, I'm not, you know, I know Windhorst has tried to make something of this. I'm not sh- sure how bad of terms it they left on from LeBron's perspective. I know the Heat felt burned, but I don't know if LeBron felt that way or if he just felt he had to go home. Yeah, I mean, I know Pat Riley's been on record, what, in Ian Thompson's book, um, saying that he felt burned by it. So you do wonder, I mean, they didn't go scorched earth like Dan Gilbert did when he first left Cleveland, but, you know, clearly how LeBron felt toward him was in reaction to that. So, you know, after uh, after hearing Riley's comments, does LeBron view him differently? I mean, I know in, in Ian's like he presented the comments that Pat Riley made to him and he didn't like get in a pissing match or anything, but you know, you do wonder, does that carry over into a series like here? And I think even down the line, like this is still, this is still a few years removed, but whenever LeBron retires and it's, you know, a generation past, like, are they going to view LeBron is that like heat luminary family or do they view a goddess rings and that's it, but he's not part of the alumni network, right? Like that's something that I'm fascinated with, like not now, but more once more, more time passes. There was such a conspicuous moment last night when Eric Spolstra was doing his, his interview and shouting out all these, these heat legends, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh and going through them and, and obviously leaves off LeBron because uh, they're playing him. And <laughs> yeah. So yeah, of course he's not right now. Uh, you know, if the Heat were playing the Clippers in the finals, I think Spolster might have said LeBron last night. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, look, there's we're in agreement here, right? Like, there's zero chance that the number six LeBron jersey isn't retired someday, right? In Miami, like they're going to do that, right? I mean, I would hope they have the Jordan retired <laughs> <laughs> and Dan Marino. Yeah. So. And the Dan Marino retired jersey, which always just throws me off. Uh, um, I'll tell you, just from media members that I've been texting with, I don't want to name any names, Bon Temps. I don't want to name any names, um, but I, I, and others. There's a certain number of media who are like, man, Los Angeles versus Miami, and we're either stuck in the bubble in Orlando or not making that trip at all. <laughs> Like, finally, you're in two great cities and this just doesn't happen. And I, you know, I don't get to charge off all this time on, uh, on my company. So sorry, Dan, you are, you are, uh, you're not going either. So man, yeah, that would have been a hell of a finals, you know, even if Boston, yeah. like, I mean, I know it's not South beach, but Boston's a great restaurant. Yeah. Drink, so no, Boston yeah. would have been great too. I, Dan, you yeah. lived in Boston for a while, didn't you? Yeah. I, I did. Boston's a, I lived in Boston. Boston's a great place to visit. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, since I've been covering the finals in person, it's been, you know, in the East, Cleveland, 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 Miami, man, that is a missed opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Cleveland is a, I don't mind Cleveland as a place to visit for work, but um, it's not Miami. The, the scenery is different on every level. So um, we'll, we'll move on from that into, um, I, I think that, are there any, is there, Mark, is there anything we didn't talk about yet? Like, I think that this is really going to come down to, for me, it's, it comes down to Miami's ability to, con- if they can contain, nobody's stopping LeBron James and Anthony Davis, but if they can make them work in one-on-one battles because of their defenders more and stay home on the Lakers shooters better. So some guys aren't, you know, Danny Green's not getting wide open looks and they can start to contest a little better. They can cause the Lakers problems. I just. I trust that Laker defense and ultimately I trust LeBron James in a big moment. Yeah, no, I, uh, I think you covered it really well. I think that this falls under like specifically with the Lakers, this whole theme this year where, you know, I think one of the reasons why they've been equipped for this bubble beyond what I've already set up, you know, outlined before is even before the pandemic, this was a season full of, potential landmines that could have blown up in their face and didn't like there's been zero of like the Lakers soap opera that usually happened. Um, Number one, you know, they had the training camp in China, which got disrupted because of the uh, controversy with the government and Daryl Morey's tweet for the Hong Kong protesters. And it's easy to say that, yeah, well, they got LeBron and Anthony Davis, but I think as NBA teams have shown over the years, like, a lot of good talent can be combustible if people aren't on the same page. And I think that's been a testament to like, not only do their games complement each other really well, but their personalities are completely in sync. And then, you know, Frank Vogel deserves a lot of credit where he inherited a team that had LeBron and Anthony Davis, but he also inherited a team that had a lot of dysfunction in the front office inherited a team with I think seven new players to open the season and he also inherited a team that frankly didn't want him as their first choice they had interviewed Tyron Liu who has history with LeBron they interviewed Monty Williams and he was able to navigate all those things and still show that you know what look I am a good head coach I had a lot of success in Indiana 
And I think that game going into this season, there was a thought that if the Lakers were to get to this point, it would have just been on talent alone of LeBron and AD, but there would have been a lot of Lakers soap opera dysfunction behind the scenes. And that hasn't been the case at all with anything. And I think that that's been a pleasant surprise. And then, you know, on top of that, they've also had to navigate through some heavy stuff with not only the pandemic, but dealing with Kobe's tragedy. So there's been a lot of things that they've found ways to just plow through without things blowing up in their face. It's a really good point. I'll say this, Dan, one last thing I wanted to touch on was every time teams reach the finals or make, you know, we get to these final four, this is the NBA is a copycat league and teams look at them and say, all right, well, how can we kind of start to be more like what these successful teams are doing? Uh, the bubble throws a, a bit of a wrench into all of that again, because we've, as we discussed, it's a little bit of a one-off, but I think the one takeaway is you look at the teams of uh, three of the four teams that were left. You've got Anthony Davis and Bam Adebayo, Jokic. You've got big men who can space the floor a little bit, but also are really good passers at the heart of their offenses. I think there's a lot of teams that are going to look at that and move even continue the move away from traditional centers. I just, that's easy to say because there's just not a lot of Bam out of bios and Anthony Davis is out there. Yeah, it is interesting how, how it worked out that way. Um, I think there's something to the idea, especially when I look at Jokic, that a, a passing center is a skill that translates to the playoffs. Uh, I think we've reached a point in the NBA where there's probably as big a difference as ever between what works in the regular season and what works in the playoffs. Uh, and we know some of the things that definitely translate, right? Like, three and D wings who, who uh, you know, can handle the ball a little bit like the wing play where you can shoot like that's so important in the playoffs, but a, a big man who can pass. Yeah. I think there might be something to that when, when defense is set, when the game slows down, that's something that can still work very well. Now these are, as you said, uh, maybe there shouldn't be the copycats because it's hard to pull off. What makes Bam out of bio special. He's a good passer for a center, a very good passer for a center, but for a center who passes that well, he is an elite defender, right? To get that combination right. is very rare. Jokic isn't that kind of defender, but he's the best passing center of all time. Anthony Davis, I'd say, honestly, passing might be his weakest skill. He's still pretty good at it because he's a great all-around player. So, yes, I think there's something to it. I think maybe in the draft, if you see some a center who, who has some of those skills or you can develop those skills within your center, that's great. And maybe there should be more emphasis on that. But all of a sudden thinking, yeah, I can just duplicate this. I can just find like so some ho-hum passing center. Like I don't think that's going to get it done. No. And by the way, you know, we didn't mention in this because they didn't work that way, but Draymond Green played that role, right? Yes. For watching for uh, for the Warriors for the last few years. Again, you know, they could put him at the five, not give up anything defensively, and he was phenomenal as a passer on that short roll. Yeah, so, and I think I think when we're looking at all these things, I, I don't think there's a wrong answer of how philosophically you have a team, but I think that there needs to be an emphasis on you're prioritizing what that player's skill is and then building around it. So when you're looking at the Rockets, for example, I might be in the minority here, but I, I thought the, uh, the Robert Covington trade was a good move to make because they made the calculation, look, Clint Capella just wasn't a rim protector uh, effective enough for us, especially in the postseason. So why even try to do something that we're not good at? Let's double down on something that we are good at. But I think to Dan's point, 
there are teams that have different players that can do different things. And so how that pertains to the center position, look, I, I think it's not a stretch to say you don't want a lumbering big guy to just do post-ups all game. Like that's inefficient, but it, it shouldn't be a prerequisite that they have to shoot threes. Like I think as long as you have, you know, different tools in the toolbox that make you versatile and then have players around them to complement their skill sets, that's, that's the formula. But I think with that formula, it all varies team to team because every, every player, every team's roster has different skills that players have. Yeah. By the way, we left, you know, leaving off the list of teams that made it fairly deep in the playoff. Mark Gasol is a really good passing big man who, uh, who, but uh, to your point, I mean, he can shoot a three, but he really doesn't that like he's much more of a, a guy who's going to play inside, but he's got skills that allow them to run things off of him and, and make it work in Toronto. And Nick nurse is obviously incredibly creative with how he uses his players. Um, so I think you might see more of that, but like you said, I think that that's more of an evolution of as big men come into the league, looking at that skill set. And so, you know, you start to think, well, that guy was this. And the other thing now you're going to look at the draft after this year, after looking at Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero and and as Dan mentioned before, the the rise of guys like Devin Booker and say, we should just draft those kids from Kentucky, man. Like, like we're sleeping on those guys. I am not going to make the mistake. I'm not going to make the mistake again of saying somebody playing at Kentucky who looks one dimensional while at Kentucky is one dimensional because they've all expanded their skill set in the pros. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just they're so overloaded with talent at Kentucky. They don't even have to like oh, just play in your play in your lane, man. We're all good. Um, uh, you were talking about copycat league and all of that. I, I thought you were going to talk a little bit about you know, and I'm curious what you guys think. The, the Heat, the way they built this up, right? They didn't tank. Uh, they didn't take a step back willingly. Like they tried to win it. You know, do do you think this changes how teams approach it? That that some teams that had more patience for tanking, uh, ownership is going to say, well, what, what are we doing? What's what was the point of this? Yeah, you would hope, but I think you know the thing that allowed the Heat to do this is that they have really good people that do their job effectively, and you know they have they know how to draft well, they know how to do player development, and you know, there's franchises that don't do those things well. I think the very least that teams can do is, look, you, you might miss on the draft, like that everyone does, but player development is a huge thing. Yeah. And I think the Heat tap into it, the, one of the greatest, because, you know, they have everyone be on the same page as far as the discipline and the conditioning and, and the accountability with that. But uh, they really prioritize getting very good constructive feedback to players. And you would think, yeah, that's a basic thing in professional sport. Mm -hmm. But I know there's a lot of times that franchises don't do that because they just get so bogged down with the, the 82 game schedule. And, you know, they don't want to, you know, put too much emphasis on practice time, but I think there's a difference between that and getting instruction and, yeah, you would love for people to copycat the, the heat on doing that, but that also requires organizations with having, you know, good people that work for them. Yeah, you, and you I think, by the way, go, go ahead, Dan. Oh, you, you're definitely right on, on the teams that, you know, are focused on the season and don't want to get, you know, have too much practice time trying to keep their players fresh. And, and those are mostly, not completely, but mostly teams trying to win now on the flip side. 
there are yeah. teams that are just so awful that yes, even though they think their focus is on player development, when the culture is so so bad, like you know, players have young players especially have a tougher time buying in and doing the extra work when they just see like, hey, we're we're just trying to lose right now. Like this isn't a winning environment. So the Heat hit that exact right balance. Where, yeah, yeah, where they practice hard, point. but also it's very clear like we are trying to get better, we are trying to win, and you need to buy in. And you know, the other thing the Heat have going for them is they've proven it pays off, right? If you're a young player and you have any doubt of like, is this extra work actually worth it? If you're in Miami, the answer is obviously yes. Look at the players who've gotten paid, look at the the rings they've won, look at the success. You know it's going to pay off. There's that trust there based on the Heat's history uh, that other teams would have to build up. I will say this about the idea, though, of, of taking Miami. Look, Miami is very good at player development, and I think that that is the next thing that sets teams apart. Look, the, the Spurs were very good at it, are very good at it, but you know, look, obviously we're very good at it through their through their run through the playoffs. Right now, Toronto might be the best at that, and that's a team that is going to quickly transition. They're not going to bottom out uh, because they found guys like Pascal Siakam and, and were able to develop them. Miami, though, also has an advantage, and I think market does matter here. You don't have to bottom out because you can recruit guys. You can get big-time free agents to Miami in a way that, to be honest with you, Oklahoma City is not going to do. And I could, I don't want to, I don't want to go ripping through a bunch of markets, uh, but you're just and try to insult them. It's just it's harder to recruit to some areas than others. It's the advantage the Lakers have always had is that they can go, and then the Clippers took advantage of it this year. Certain markets, it's just easier to recruit big names, and that can that can that can make it a lot shorter rebuild. That's a great point. I also wonder, like going all the way back, you were talking about would the Heat have made this run in a normal season, you know, or what if they got a slightly different matchup? Because we pretty much everybody agreed, all right, even if they're not as good as the Bucks, like stylistically, this is Miami is dangerous against the Bucks. What what right. if the Heat had to play the the Raptors in the second round, a team that's not as good as the Bucks probably? Uh, but maybe uh, Miami didn't have the matchup advantages. Like, what if this just ended with a second-round loss? Because I think it very easily could have. You know, you look at this team. Jimmy Butler's a year older. Dragic is a year older. Yes, I'm a Bam Adebayo's developing. But, like, you know, maybe the maybe this is the peak for the Heat. And the peak looks a lot better when it's a trip to the finals uh, than when it's the second-round loss. And I, I think there could be some overreaction to results rather than saying, like, yeah, this is, it didn't have to go this way, I guess is my point. Fair enough. I think that that will that sums it up. I want to thank you guys for doing this, Mark Medina from USA Today. Everybody can find you on Twitter at Mark G underscore Medina, and he will be uh, writing for the USA Today. And uh, and then we're I was about to say we jump instantly into the play, finals. It's kind of play or draft it, like most years. I'm like, nope, actually no, we got like a month. Like it's a little, <laughs> it's kind of a weird and like we don't quite know when free agency is going to start. My first thought was that they'd never start free agency right after the draft because Thanksgiving's right there. But then I'm like, Anna, uh, they do that to 4th of July every year. Why would they? You know? So <laughs> I, in the, it's had a way of making things weird. So I guess we'll brace for any scenario. Exactly. It's it, exactly. I don't know what 2020 is going to look like. I don't know that we're going to see meaningful games after these finals until next February or March. So Savor them while you can, people. Enjoy the games. Enjoy the finals. We will be back next week breaking down more of the – oh, I, Dan, I didn't even say goodbye to Dan because I'm rude. I'm sorry. Dan, thanks again for, all, for everything. Oh, because you were so rude, I already left. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. 
Thanks again, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week breaking down the finals and talking about uh, any coaching hires or anything else that goes on around the league with the Pro Basketball Talk podcast. Thanks again for listening.